When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. An architecture contest for a new pedestrian-friendly Oxford Circus. Government planning reforms face backlash after shock by election defeat. The late Charles Jenks Cosmic House to open as a museum this September. And could better pay be the real way to boost architects' mental well-being? My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Eddie Heathcote. Eddie is architecture and design critic at the Financial Times. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Our first story has been covered in the AJ and widely across the London built environment media. It's all to do with a major contest set to be organised by the RIBA on behalf of Westminster City Council and the Crown Estate to transform Oxford Circus into two pedestrian friendly piazzas. The contest, which is expected to launch this summer, will select a world-leading and forward-facing concept to upgrade the landmark junction on Oxford Street. It is part of a £150 million council-led investment in upgrading the area in time for the Elizabeth Line opening in 2022. The project aims to upgrade public realm and reduce pedestrian congestion in the area by creating more pleasant places to eat, drink, shop and enjoy the centre of the city. It will also deliver additional planting and seating to improve the overall look and feel of the busy junction. The introduction of experimental traffic orders are hoped to transform the famously busy interchange uh, into a pedestrian first zone. The announcement comes 12 years after Atkins delivered a new £5 million diagonal crossing system at Oxford Circus, which at normal times is typically used by thousands of people an hour. Westminster City Council leader Rachel Robotham commented, saying the reinvention of the area would, quote, help instill much-needed confidence in the West End and support local businesses, as well as tackling key issues such as pedestrian congestion, air pollution and noise. The council's opposition Labour group has, however, raised concerns over the potential for any improvement to Oxford Circus to increase traffic and pollution in nearby residential streets. The upgrade to this famous junction has been a long time coming. In 2017, Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, announced a consultation on proposals to pedestrianise Oxford Street in its entirety. However, these plans were quashed by Westminster City Council at the time, who instead proposed an alternative way forward. 
So Eddie, what do you think about this announcement? Oxford Circus, pre-pandemic, it was a nightmare to negotiate on foot, whether in vehicles such as a taxi, bus or bicycle, it was all pretty difficult. Uh, the area has been the focus of various grand visions for its improvement spanning back decades. The current brief envisages two plazas uh, closed to vehicles on either side of the junction, a limited flow of traffic going north to south along Regent Street. Um, why is it that Oxford Circus has proved such a challenge for so many mayors and politicians uh, to resolve? And what really needs to happen here in architectural and traffic planning terms to make this new space a success? Well, I think it's an absolutely perennial but kind of fascinating problem because, you know, as Londoners, we all say that we'll try and avoid Oxford Circus because it's a kind of nightmare of tourists and mass shoppers and commuters. And there's a kind of snobbism, I think, towards uh, Oxford Circus, which is extremely unhelpful because it kind of um, allows us to withdraw from the question. You know, it allows us to say, oh, Oxford Circus, well, we're not going there anyway, so in a way we don't have to worry about it. And that's part of the problem is that lack of engagement has meant that all the plans have been kind of meh. But actually, you know, you can't avoid it. Oxford Circus absolutely is one of those hubs if you're going to the BBC or the Photographer's Gallery or the ROBA or... So it is a kind of critical uh, hub. And I'm going to use that as an opportunity not to address your question directly, but to talk about the circus, which is, I think, a really interesting and, and very British kind of affair. There might be some successful circuses in Cheltenham or Bath, but basically it's a kind of lost archetype. And there's something kind of very sad in the name of a circus. You know, I think of sad, shabby donkeys and elephants and uh, and, 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 and kind of clowns and, you know, cholerophobia and, and, you know, all the kind of detritus of the circus when I think of Piccadilly Circus or Oxford Circus. And I think, you know, there's something interesting about that these places, Piccadilly Circus, Cambridge Circus, particularly Oxford Circus, of being absolutely in the centre of the city and being completely neglected in a way. Uh, and it's a very British condition. You know, it's a, it's a very British archetype of public space to have a public space with no public space in it, just traffic running through it. Um, and, and I think there's something kind of intriguing about that. And this plan is, is exactly bang in the, in the middle of the problem. It's going to be a new public space with traffic running through the middle of it which is not a public space, you know. And so the whole, in a way, the whole thing kind of stems from a misapprehension or a misunderstanding of what public space is. Having said that, I suppose any attention to Oxford Circus is better than none. Absolutely. Um, I mean, well, look, Westminster City Council's opposition Labour group has already released a statement criticising the plans. Uh, they claim it could lead to more vehicles being diverted to residential streets to the north and south of Oxford Circus. Um, they also noted that the proposed rerouting of bus surfaces simply threatens to displace air pollution and congestion into neighbouring areas rather than actually tackling some of these issues uh, head, head, head on. Now, obviously, in London, yeah, we've had some high profile street upgrades, like one example is um dixon jones's exhibition road in south kensington um but you know sometimes you, you can wander down these places and you can talk to people and you can say well um you know sometimes it's been seen to not really do that much to stop the kind of aggressive nature of some uh, local traffic like particularly taxi drivers which which still just go along exhibition road like nothing's changed at all um you know despite the millions <laughs> being spent to try and make it into a public space it's still got traffic going through it um 
you know, how do we how do we move beyond projects like these, like this one in Oxford Circus, simply just being a kind of negotiating and rerouting of an unstoppable volume of traffic, you know, which London's always going to have, uh, and instead, like, draw on some either, like, design or some kind of political power to instead be drastically reducing the number of vehicles o- on the road to really create these spaces? Well, we're in a very interesting moment now, I think, because everything is going to change you know, it's 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 being made more dif- it's more difficult for people to drive into the centre of the city, which I think we're all in favour of. That's great. Um, electric cars are going to change things, and I think you're you're right to mention Exhibition Road because it's certainly a better public space, so it's a better experience than it was. But I'm not sure it's a very safe space. You know, I would certainly be concerned about uh, partially sighted people, about people with uh, poor hearing. So, <laughs> it's shared space is a nice idea. But it only works if pedestrians actually have priority. Um, and that's not going to happen in Oxford Circus because the, the, the bus and the taxi traffic is just too heavy. So <clears throat> I, I don't know. And, I, and, I, and it's very difficult to see a, it's very difficult to see a future. You know, the, the kind of consensus, I think, has been is that Oxford Street is a kind of sewer uh, along which we get rid of all the polluting uh bus and taxi traffic which is inevitable in the center of the city uh and and to some extent maybe that's inevitable maybe you know because otherwise you begin to bugger up marylebone and uh soho you know what do you do now soho has been reinvented as some kind of sub mediterranean dining out paradise instead of the sleazy wonderful place that it was it's been kind of privatized by the restaurants um so that's the traffic's not going to be running through there you know, really, Marlebone is a, is a is a kind of lovely, quiet area. You don't really want the traffic running through there either. So, you're kind of stuck with Oxford Street, and maybe all you can do is alleviate the worst of the problems. And maybe you know, maybe this scheme is a recognition that that that's all you can do is just kind of alleviate things by planting a few trees and and uh, kind of pretending that Oxford Circus is a kind of public space. So the leader of Westminster City Council, Rachel Robotham, said that this redevelopment would help support local businesses after the pandemic. Now, leaving aside the obvious fact this area is largely dominated by commercial giants such as like Zara, Uniqlo, Nike, H&M, all those kind of big retailers. Um, you know, why is it that so many people might think that bold public realm upgrades like this are possibly one way that central london areas obviously devastated by the pandemic recover from the downturn um but like in this way of thinking they're kind of you know looking at retail success but overlooking some other more sustainable ingredients like for example affordable local housing uh you know instead just focusing on this idea that we're going to create london's version of times square the problem is we're stuck in a retail model from 1989 you know, which is uh, the the big the big chains who are going to come in. They're debt laden. They're not worried about about um, you know being able to pay their rents. The landlords are happy because you know they 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 just guaranteed their huge rents for the next twenty five years. Um, but I think you know with the decline of the department stores, it seems an incredible opportunity to reinvent the whole area. Why can't those department stores be reinvented as say cultural spaces? You know, I mean, they're they're absolutely perfect for, say, immersive theatre, for workshops, for, you know, galleries. I mean, they've got deep floor plates. They, uh, you know, galleries, those kind of, you know, theatrical uh, places, um, venues, concerts. They don't need 
Um, they don't need natural light, so the deep floor plates are not a problem. They're already kind of geared up for public access. They're accessible with lifts and, and so on. They're right on the street. It seems to me that, that there's a trick being missed here. Rather than building new cultural institutions, which is still going on all over the place, we should be re-evaluating department stores. And whether that's whether that future is some kind of Dover Street market type up upmarket retail uh, come you know gallery space, or whether it's a a more vibrant sort of cultural thing, or whether it's a kind of Kensington Market vintage setup. You know, when I was young, we used to go to Kensington Market to get our kind of uh, psychobilly records or leather jackets or uh, dodgy uh, sailor tattoos or whatever it was. Um, you know, that kind of space is pretty much lacking in the centre of London now. Um, and it's been pushed out even from the margins of Camden or wherever it was, because it's all been all these places now are just lunch stalls, you know. But so I know we're going to come on to planning later, but it's all part of planning. There is no imagination in what Oxford Street could be. I mean, is anyone really happy with what Oxford Street is now? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure they are. Maybe, you know, there's a certain amount of revenue and a certain amount of business rates coming out of it but it's not a it's not a success by any kind of uh, other measure apart from pure uh, you know rental income I, I wouldn't think and turnover I mean it's not a success culturally it's not a success aesthetically architecturally in terms of planning in terms of enjoyment so uh, you know I think we just it's time for a new model you are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month. And Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story this week has been widely covered across the architecture media, including in the AJ, the FT and the Guardian. It's all to do with the Chesham and Amersham by-election, which saw the Conservatives lose a long-held seat to the Liberal Democrats. The shock outcome has been widely attributed to the government's controversial new planning forms, which are now facing even more opposition from both inside the Conservatives party and now from Labour than they did before. Since the shock result, Tory MPs have been piling pressure on the government to rethink its overhaul of the planning system, which was announced in the Queen's speech a few weeks ago. Described as the biggest shake-up of the planning system for more than 70 years, the bill is set to streamline the planning process, making it more difficult for existing homeowners to block new housing schemes. The current planning process gives residents two chances to object to developments. One, when the local plan is drawn up, and again when an individual application is put in. The new system could do away with this second stage, as ministers believe that more affluent homeowners use the planning application stage to object to schemes they do not like. The government will set targets for each area, and the country will be split into homes marked for growth, renewal and protection. Homes, hospitals, schools, shops and offices will get automatic planning approval in growth areas. Development will be restricted in protected areas, but not ruled out, and local design codes will be used to shape the form and quality of new constructions everywhere. The overhaul has been condemned as shameful and counterproductive by the RIBA, and the Town and Country Planning Association has accused the government of missing the chance to use planning to improve health and well-being. 
Andy Slaughter, a Labour MP speaking to The Guardian, said the reforms were evidence of, quote, an increasingly corrupt relationship between the Conservative Party and the major developers and builders, dubbing it, quote, donations for deregulation. As Tory MPs voiced concern over the issue in the wake of last week's by-election defeat, the Labour Party held an opposition day debate on the reforms and called on MPs to revolt and vote against the government. So, Eddie, what's this all about? Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick has fiercely defended the government's proposals, writing in The Telegraph. He said that the government had a duty to ensure home ownership was a realistic possibility for young people and families. So why is providing more housing, especially in rural and suburban areas around London, such an enormously divisive political issue? And, and you know, why is it people actually find it easier to, to believe that reforms like these are being pushed through to serve the purpose of the construction industry than it is to accept there is a genuine need to build new, sustainable, affordable homes on a really large scale? Well, there are a number of questions there, Merlin. That's not just one question. But I think we need to look at the figure, which is last year developers donated £11 million to the Conservative Party. That's actually not a lot of money. You know, the, the it's a lot of money for the Conservative Party. It's not a lot of money for developers. Developers' profits have absolutely skyrocketed. You know, they're in the some of them are in the hundreds of millions. For them, these small donations are kind of peanuts. This legislation really is about the developers dictating their own agenda. So, in a country uh, with a a kind of considered, careful, and intelligent planning system, you may well be able to institute something like this. Uh, where there is a plan and then you don't allow after the plan, after people have been consulted on the plan, you don't allow them, them to tinker with the with the kind of fine details. But that's not what we've got. What we've got is a planning system that has been denuded and stripped of all its capacity, its intelligence, its workforce. What we've got here is a system that's effectively been uh, outsourced. So as the planning uh, departments of local authorities have been um, stripped of their uh, budgets. You know, we've now got planning proposals which are effectively in the hands of the developers. So all the planning bodies can do now really is react to what they're given. The, the private sector proposes an enormous development. The, uh, uh, um, the planners tinker with it around the edges well they say maybe you could take a couple of stories off here maybe you could you know put some trees in there maybe a little you know a bit a bit more section 106 maybe a library that's it and that's not planning planning is where the local authority is absolutely has a plan you know for what's going to happen here for 25 years for 50 years for 100 years you know and we really see the results of that in london you know in in, in Vauxhall nine elms uh, battersea you know, it's it's complete free for all. It's a it's an insane system with you know, with towers that are built for the wrong reasons and for the wrong people in the wrong places with with the wrong things happening around them at their bases. They're not integrated. They're not proper social housing. Um, so we are struggling with kind of at both ends. We have a system that is geared towards the developers that's now being almost given over to the developers. I mean, obviously, um, you know, we've got the Robert Jenrick saying in the Daily Telegraph that they've got a duty uh, you know, to make home ownership an option uh, for young people. 
and families uh, and obviously that's kind of described as the reason why they're going down this route you know creating this planning system um that you've just sort of critiqued on, on those terms um now obviously we, like we know lack of affordable housing is a considerable issue in the uk um you know especially in london but but planning reform obviously this is a type of planning reform. it's been high up on that political agenda for more than a decade now um without really making any real dent on this crisis um when we look at this, you know, if this thing goes ahead, when we look at this impact, what could it be of this proposed zoning system, particularly when it comes to what they're saying it should be, i.e. delivering more homes? Um, you know, will architects of the built environment potentially suffer or benefit from this new uh, zoning system? Uh, and also, leaving that zoning system aside, uh, what other kind of initiatives might really be necessary to tide, turn the tide on this worsening situation on, in housing in the UK? None of this is about affordable housing. So the, the developers building in, uh, in Chesham and Amersham is not about affordable housing. They're expensive neighbourhoods uh, and that housing is not being aimed at you know, working class families. There's a misapprehension that, this, that housing is a supply and demand problem and it's not because you know, we've seen a huge amount of apartments being, for, for argument's sake, delivered in London. Huge amount. Have, have London house prices come down because of that? Not at all. You know, the, because London is a kind of global market, the, 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 the supply is just going to be snapped up, whether it's by locals or by, by international investors. So this is not, it's not a question of you build more housing and the price comes down. If you want to have affordable housing, you have to build a huge amount, I mean a huge amount of social housing. And if, if struggling families are able to be housed in in good conditions in humane housing by the local authority at affordable by genuinely affordable rents then that end of the, the rental market that's so now so attractive to investors begins to fall apart and then you will see um, the housing becoming a bit more affordable at least at one end of the market so you know the only way to make affordable housing is to build actually social housing for the government or local authorities to build social housing and really they're not doing that and you can see from that that there is no actual desire to uh, uh, you know to address this problem in fact quite the opposite it is in this government's interest to make to maintain the rising asset prices that uh, keep their electorate voting for them you know which is an, a, a, an elderly um, affluent electorate um, in the south, anyway, we'll talk about the north another time, I guess. But this isn't really not. None of this is about affordable housing. This is about profits for developers. And and you touched briefly on this kind of uh, older generation whose uh, asset wealth has been inflated through property ownership. They quite luckily bought the ho homes when they're cheap, and now they're worth an enormous amount. I mean, when we think about this government, this conservatives-led government, it seems to be caught in a bit of a bind because. Uh, increasing home ownership historically has led to more support uh, for this party of government. Um, you know, but however, and, and, they, and it's, that's very clearly said by them, by the by the Conservatives themselves. Um, but in the case of Amersham and Chesham, uh, people who traditionally vote for the party seem to be turning away out of fear that more homes could be built in these you know, lush green suburbs uh, where they live. So is it the case that this, the existing voter base of the government is therefore a key 
force blocking the renewal and expansion of that very voter base with young, more homeowners. Is this anti-housing or is it just anti-social? Um, and do you think this conflict could be enough for the government to rethink these reforms, water them down and walk away from it? It's a really interesting question. And it's a it's a problem the, the Tories will have because in, in Amersham and Chesham, for instance, if they were to expand housing, it's likely to be aimed at younger people, younger families. Younger families are more likely to have been pro-Remain and not necessarily Tory. Uh, in the North, it's a generational thing, as, as, as I understand it. You know, the, the people above, for argument's sake, 50 are more likely to have been pro-Brexit and quite possibly to be living in social housing or in council housing. Um, because they grew up in a time where that was still possible and where there was a there were there was a supply of council housing still up north, that's changing again. And I think up, up north as well, it's a it, when the young when younger people are struggling. You know, they're not necessarily that certain to vote Tory. Uh, so I think that you know what's happened here is we have this kind of confluence of 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 a generational problem being confused with a geographical problem. Uh, older towns are sorry northern towns are getting older as young people have to you know migrate for work they have to come down to london or go to the bigger cities so the towns which we're always hearing about um that have gone that went very strongly for brexit and for johnson um are solid because they have aging declining populations so you know and i think they know and then what what the the tory party is probably realizing is that they need to uh they need to attract a more youthful uh, crowd to vote for them, but they're doing nothing for them. And and and, the, and our growth in this country is predicated on the rise in housing prices. You know, if you strip away the, the rise in the value of assets, housing prices, but also shares, pension portfolios and so on, there is no growth here at all. And there hasn't been for a long time. Our next story appeared in Wallpaper, and it's the announcement of the planned reopening of the late Charles Jenks' Cosmic House in Notting Hill as a museum in September. Our guest this week, Eddie, has worked closely on the museum conversion project as head of its steering committee and in the role of Keeper of Meaning, a direct appointment made by Jenks himself. Uh, the Holland Park Villa is the UK's only Grade 1 listed post-war home, and it was designed by the famed architectural historian Charles Jenks, uh, the writer and pundit whose books helped to define postmodernism as an architectural style. Uh, Jenks died in 2019, but submitted applications to have his home turned into a museum as far back as 2017. Uh, the building, which is considered by many to be the spiritual home of postmodernism, was host to many conversations with leading architects and designers uh, throughout its time as Jenks' home. Uh, when the building opens as a public museum in September, it will again host a programme of talks, residencies and exhibitions. So, Eddie, you were personally appointed the Keeper of Meaning by Jenks himself. Uh, could you tell our listeners a bit more about uh, the, this amazing writer and architectural historian, uh, why he was such an influential figure in postmodern architecture, uh, also the legacy he left behind, um, and also paint a picture of the house itself uh, and what people can look forward to seeing when it comes uh, to opening its doors in September? Charles Jenks was uh, an American a cultural historian, I think probably is the best way to describe him. Uh, he was instrumental in the emerging postmodern movement in the same way that uh, Robert uh, Venturi and Denise Scott Brown uh, were sit laying down the theory of uh, a kind of uh, an architecture 
that was beyond late modernism. Um, and he wrote a, a book called um, The Language of Postmodern Architecture, which was the book that, that sort of drew together these uh, threads of mid-70s architecture. Uh, and that book, you know, it, 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 was, it was republished and translated in multiple editions. And it became the kind of key text of the, the next phase of, of, of architecture after modernism. And the Cosmic House was his house, and he worked on with Terry Farrell, very closely with, with Terry Farrell, who was then just split from um, Nicholas Grimshaw. And they created this kind of postmodernist Gesamtkunstwerk inside a <clears throat> Victorian uh, villa. I mean, it really is the most extraordinary uh, uh, interior. It's kind of uh, a joyful, uh, kitsch, um, a bit kind of excessive, super theatrical. And, and sort of incredible fun, but also absolutely dense with um, symbolism and meaning and ideas and, you know, uh, ideas about the cosmos, about the history of architecture, history of civilization, the worship of the sun. Along with his wife, uh, Maggie Jenks, the Scottish writer, artist, garden designer who died in 1995, Charles co-founded Maggie's Centres. Uh, it was a network of drop-in, humane, healthy and inspirational buildings designed to provide qualitative palliative care to people affected by cancer and their families. Uh, you know, top architects, including Zaha Hadid, Frank Gehry, OMA, Norman Foster, uh, were among those involved in designing buildings uh, for the Trust. Just thinking... How does this vision he shared for people accessing brilliant architecture and uplifting buildings relate then to his vision for, for Cosmic House itself uh, being an open place for the public? You know, what role could then Cosmic House, just like Maggie's play, in encouraging leading architects and benefactors to sort of get together and put their weight behind some other big issues of the day? Obviously, affordable housing, we discuss a lot uh, on this show, and also climate change. Housing is, is very much in our, in our minds because, you know, we're... We're in this super affluent area of London, Holland Park, and and as soon as you get out of the house, you can see the the um, the Grenfell Tower. You know, so we're very aware of the juxtaposition in London between this kind of incredible wealth and uh, remarkable poverty, actually, and 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 complete government neglect. Um, and you know, so we we will be trying to give grants and encourage. Uh, young people who might otherwise not become involved in architecture or even consider it as an option uh, to begin to understand the world. And I think in a way the house is a very accessible mechanism for doing that because it's a, a glimpse into what architecture can do, which I think is what the Maggies did as well. So Maggies was not aimed at architects, it was aimed at cancer sufferers. And the idea was that they could be provocative places which could stimulate people to appreciate their environment. Absolutely. And um, I mean, obviously, as you were saying, this building architecturally was enormously influential uh, during that moment of flourishing postmodernism. And um, you know, Jenks's written work as well was similarly influential within architecture and beyond. Um, I mean, he famously uh, introduced the sort of groundbreaking assertion that modernism died on the 5th of July 1972 when the Pruitt-Igoe Social Housing Project in St. Louis was partially demolished. Um, Jenks uses it as an example of how the subsidised high-rise modernist buildings had failed in providing housing for people on low incomes and then went on to extrapolate this example to other cases 
across the globe. Um, it was an extremely influential uh, voice and um, argument. Um, but you know, what impact do you think, uh, looking back from where we are now, that this had on the way that social housing was subsequently treated? Um, and if you look at the, you know, the kind of concerns that we have um, around uh, the renewal, the sort of demolition of social housing estates, like Pruitt Igo might have been celebrated as a demolition in the past, but now we we look at things like the enormous social environmental cost of estate demolitions. Um, and you know, obviously, as you said, this house in Holland Park is only a stone's throw away from from Grenfell. Um, you know, is is it is it too much to ask that maybe if if collective attitudes towards high rise blocks had been different historically, um, we might not have had um, this sort of present situation where these modernist blocks are seen as something that needs to be removed or something that needs to be hidden, um, and and you end up with these uh, botched refurbishments with catastrophic conclusions. Yeah, well, I mean, Jenks um, did get caught up in a moment where uh, there was a major questioning of, of the modernist orthodoxy of the benefit of these kind of what we might call kind of monocultural housing estates, you know, where you, 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 you ship what we might call the working classes into one place and you kind of store them all together. Um, and he was probably instrumental in the beginnings of the questioning of that kind of approach to mass housing and whether that's you know whether he could be criticized for that or not i think you know he probably could you know he got caught up in a in a kind of confusion of of architecture and politics so i think he was critical of the of the kind of architecture of that moment which tended to be a very stripped down uh version of modernism very kind of uh meager version or austere version of modernism um but the problem really was not the architecture the problem was always the maintenance and i think potentially you know that that what what jenks uh, you might say he was partly responsible for is not making that uh differentiation clear he conflates architecture with with politics and these are political decisions which then become attached to architecture and i think we're still living with that confusion that housing is the modernist housing estates are somehow bad our final story this week centers around an opinion piece written by Kunle Barker for the AJ. The article argues that architecture practices must pay fair wages in order to ensure their staff are happy, rather than offering token gestures such as free yoga classes. It will be little surprise to many listeners that the architectural in industry is a stressful one, uh, with young people especially being asked to work long hours, frequently taking on unpaid overtime with little to show for all that hard work in their paychecks. The value of healthy employees is undoubtedly vitally important and after decades of being perilously overlooked mental health and how to improve it is increasingly a topic being discussed in professional environments. As a result many practices are now undertaking measures to boost staff well-being including well-being workshops and yoga classes uh, but problems could arise if this ventures into a sort of box ticking territory. Uh, mental health is a hugely complex issue, varying from individual to individual. Um, therefore, while puppy petting sessions or yoga could be helpful in some cases, they may not always be enough for everyone. Um, Recognising the issues of stress and mental health, the RIBA has announced the trial of its RIBA Compact Ethical Framework. Uh, it's an agreement between chartered practices and architectural students, including a requirement for clear contracts with no unpaid overtime and effective support in achieving PEDR, that's 
professional experience development record requirements. Um, while currently in the pilot stage, the RIBA Compact has a proposed rollout for September 2021. Uh, so Eddie, non-architects might be surprised to hear that the architecture industry is still plagued with concerns over mental health. Um, from the outside, it seems like a dream job involving a mix of drawing, modelling, working with communities, collaborating with other creative practitioners and regular site visits out of the office, um, sometimes to some really special places. So what is it about architecture that makes architecture such a stressful industry to work in? The, the mental health issues, I think, come from the combination of insane workload and expectations, which starts in architecture school. And I think maybe it's, it's changing slightly now. But, you know, I'm just I'm looking at some projects from the um, uh, RCA uh, now for doing a, doing a little kind of uh, discussion with some students next week. Christ, the amount they work, the amount of stuff that students churn out now is astonishing. I mean, we, you know, I used to work for a week, do a kind of a week of, of all-nighters, and that was it, you know, for, for three times a term. Now, you know, they're expected to, to churn out incredible amounts of work, and they're, obviously they're paying fees, so they're now much more conscious of, of the value of the portfolio and, the, and of the, 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 the amount of value they need to squeeze out of the course. And somehow the the culture hasn't changed, you know, enough that they're they're inured to working at insane hours and uh, kind of the expectation of a huge amount of production, which somehow, you know, carries through all the way through the, the professional careers. Maybe I'm a bit out of date. I, I have a feeling that actually the younger generation now uh, and the generation, you know, probably under 30 has much more acute understanding of mental well-being and and so on and, and, and kind of uh, and the work-life balance, I guess you'd call it, than my generation did. So I, I have some optimism, actually, that younger people who are much more strident in a way and much more politicised than they were, I think, 10, 20 years ago. You know, with the views on 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 gender and and you know sexuality and race and everything else, they're much more um, aware of microaggression and transgression and you know the kind of uh, the patriarchy and the hierarchy than than maybe you know we were, and they have the language to express it. So I have some optimism actually that they will begin to erode the kind of bad practices of architecture. But and I hope I'm right. Let's see. Eddie, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on The Lundown uh, this week. Where can our listeners uh, keep up to speed with all the fascinating things you're writing? Well, I write in the FT mostly, which is uh, uh, behind a paywall. So uh, that's all. that can be tricky for people without subscriptions. Twitter, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm quite active on Twitter. You can probably get most of my opinions on that. I'm on Instagram as well. Hethka Edwin on Instagram and uh, Edwin Hethka at Twitter. That's, that's, that's it. I mean... Or just, uh, you know, just get in touch. But I'm, I'm around. I'm not, not difficult to find. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again. It's been a great pleasure. And hopefully you can join us again on the show another time in the future. Fantastic. And, and then let me give one more plug to the Cosmic House. Of course, I'm going to be involved in the Cosmic House. So I'm hoping that people are going to come forward with, um, with ideas and suggestions uh, and, and, you know, forums and discussions for that. So that's where, that's where I'll be. Fantastic. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. 
If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.